Hello and welcome to the AMP podcast, the show where we discuss the latest trends, research and insights in the entertainment industry. My name's Nick Thomas. I'm the editorial director here at Ampere Analysis, and I'll be your host for today. On today's show, we'll be exploring the challenges facing broadcasters and streaming services in Europe. Now, we hear a lot about the US market, not unreasonably, it's the biggest single market in the world. But while the opportunities in Europe are significant, the dynamics across the 44 countries that make up the continent are quite distinct and different. And navigating them successfully will be key for any service, whether local or global, to grow and thrive in the European market. So to discuss this further, I've got three of my colleagues at Ampere who've all been looking at some of the challenges and opportunities for the European TV and video market. First, I'll be talking to Sam Young about the battle over release windows in France and how services there are dealing with the latest regulations. Also joining us this week is Neil Anderson, who'll be talking us through his recent work on consolidation in the TV industry across Europe. And finally, Janneke Jönsson is here to talk about Sky Showtime's rollout across Europe which sees nominal rivals joining forces to better compete in some of the smaller markets of Europe. Sam, Neil and Janneke, welcome to the show. So Sam, France has historically had one of the strictest windowing laws for SVOD services. Can you set the scene for us here? Yeah, of course. France has historically implemented rigid models around its film financing and windowing to help protect the local film and television industry with its strict media chronology laws dictating the window between the film's theatrical release and its availability by different platforms. Now, what particularly stands out in France is how long SVOD services previously had to wait before showing a movie after its theatrical release. Prior to 2022, this window for SVOD services stood at a staggering 36 months. Although in recent years, the laws surrounding both film funding and windowing have seen various amendments in response to the arrival and growth of global streaming services in the French media landscape. So the first major change implemented was the SMAD decree in 2021, which ensured the contribution of global streamers to the production of local content. This decree requires that SVOD services operating in France invest at least 20% of their French turnovers into the production of French or European content, with clauses in place to ensure distribution across multiple genres and a certain portion to be invested with independent producers. Following on from the SMAD decree, in early 2022, this SMAD decree was supplemented by modernization of France's windowing laws. Notably, SVOD services windows were significantly reduced from 36 months to 17 months following a theatrical release. Netflix, however, had their window reduced to 15 months thanks to an additional pledge to invest 40 million euros annually in local feature films. Comparably, free-to-air channels' windows stand at 22 months and cinema pay TV channels' windows start at 9 months unless a specific agreement is in place. For example, thanks to a significant investment in local feature films, Canon Plus's window starts at six months. So that's a big difference in terms of that release window, even though it's come down from 36 months to 17 months between theatrical release and SVOD release. That's a big difference from the US players who've been experimenting with like 45 days and so on. So how have the international streamers, the global streamers in France reacted to these regulations? Well, clearly there's a big difference between regulations in the US and other European markets compared to those in France. Disney, particularly unhappy with the reforms, reacted by announcing it would bypass a theatrical release of its animated adventure film, Strange World, in June 2022. And it threatened to make future decisions on a film-by-film -film basis regarding theatrical releases. This led to speculation that the blockbuster Black Panther Wakanda Forever may not actually get a theatrical release in France. However, after the French authorities acknowledged the need for further modernization of the laws, 
the film did in fact receive a theatrical run. It went on to gross 33 million at the box office, which was the second highest revenue in Europe and the fourth highest revenue globally, which really kind of highlights the importance of the French theatrical market for studios such as Disney. On the other hand, Strange World poor performance at the box office globally allowed Disney to make its point to the French authorities while avoiding forgoing significant box office takings. However, generally, due to the strength of the French market, it's unlikely that bypassing theatrical releases in France will be a viable option for Disney or other studios going forward. So we've seen that the, the laws have obviously strengthened to some degree the French theatrical market, which was one of the uh, aims of that regulation, I guess. Is there any evidence that the laws have worked to deter people in France from taking SVOD services? As well, it's difficult to determine the direct impact of these laws on French SVOD uptake. There are certainly indicators that France's SVOD market is somewhat lagging behind its European neighbours. In France, SVOD penetration of broadband households stands at 50%, uh, which is the lowest of the big European five markets compared to Germany, Spain and the UK. This low SVOD penetration may also be attributable to France's very high pay TV penetration and the popularity of linear viewing, which still accounts for around half of the average daily viewing time in France, according to Ampere's most recent consumer survey. If we bring this back to France's windowing laws, it's worth noting that a pay TV channel's window can begin as early as six months in the case of Canal Plus, and free-to-air windows generally begin at 22 months, historically both coming before an SVOD's window. So one other feature of this, and our colleague Alice talked about this in February's episode of The Amp, was about a theatrical run boosting the long-term popularity for a title when it finally hits a streaming service, however long the window. So have you been looking at, with the long windows in France, how titles are received when they, when they do eventually hit the streaming services? Yeah, so Ampere's regional popularity score certainly does indicate that wide theatrical release typically reaches high engagement for titles at the time of release. But it also shows that longer post-theatrical windows can, in fact, create a second wind of engagement for a title when it eventually makes it onto an SVOD service. For example, when Toy Story 4 came to Disney Plus in the UK and Ireland nine months after its theatrical release, the streaming premiere had little effect on the popularity score of the title in the region. Alternatively, when the title landed on Disney Plus in France three years after its theatrical release, online engagement with the title jumped significantly. In fact, upon its Disney Plus premiere, Toy Story 4's regional popularity score exceeded that record at the time of its pay TV premiere on Canal Plus two years earlier. Similar popularity spikes were seen for other titles in France upon arriving on streaming services three years after their initial theatrical release, including Ralph Breaks the Internet on Disney Plus and Bohemian Rhapsody's arrival on Amazon Prime in France. This all suggests that lengthy theatrical release windows do not necessarily eliminate the opportunity for online engagement around a delayed S4 premiere, with high-profile titles still capable of driving signups even three years after their theatrical release. So it feels like the, the French regulators, maybe a couple of years ago, seemed out of step with where Hollywood was going in terms of shorter release windows. But actually, we've seen the US studios in the US in particular return to theatrical releases and become more reliant on theatrical releases, realize how important they are to the, to the overall monetization of their content. So it feels like maybe the, the French regulators weren't so out of step after all. Now, you, you touched on another really important point about the French regulation, which is supporting and investing in local content and having a quota of local content in, in catalogues of US-backed global streamers. So how does this apply in France? And I know in particular there's a discussion around how that quota is determined, whether UK content is in there and so on. And how would these proposed changes impact those players in France? 
So across Europe, the audiovisual media services directive guidelines generally require streamers catalogues comprised of 30% European content. When looking at a title's primary country of origin, this is currently being met by Netflix across all of its European markets other than the UK. In France, 31% of Netflix's catalogue is made up of European titles. Amazon also exceeds this quota in France with 33% European content. Disney Plus's European share, on the other hand, is very low in comparison to other streaming services, standing around just 12% of titles in France. However, as you mentioned, the European Commission could possibly be considering the removal of UK titles, which would pose a significant challenge to all streamers, as UK titles make up on average around a quarter of European titles for SVOD services. So this quota could all change, certainly, as the European Commission is reportedly considering removing UK titles from this quota following Brexit. This could see the share of European works and streamers' European catalogues plummet across the continent, with European works and Netflix's catalogue falling to 24% when excluding UK content. While this change could create a significant challenge for streamers, it could also create opportunities. Further investment in European markets particularly in France, the EU's second largest content market. So beyond the guidelines of the Audiovisual Media Services Directive, local streamers established in France must adhere to further content quotas, requiring that their catalogues contain at least 60% European works rather than 30%. And they also must contain 40% works of original French expression. Thanks, Sam. I think some of those themes we'll pick up with our other colleagues as well, but for now, many thanks. So, Neil, you've been looking at consolidation in the TV industry in Europe. I think for context, it's no surprise we've seen linear viewing and pay TV subscriptions falling in recent years with the rise of global streaming services. So traditional commercial broadcasters need to adapt in order to stay competitive. And consolidation is becoming an important option for them. So what's the rationale for further consolidation in the industry? Can you set the scene a bit? Yes, certainly. The European media landscape has undergone significant changes in recent years, as you as you mentioned, with the, the rise of the streamers and, and digital platforms, changing the way that consumers get their content. As a result, linear viewing has been steadily declining, impacting the TV advertising revenues of commercial broadcasters. In parallel, pay TV subscriptions have also faced challenges as well. So in light of these challenges, broadcasters have been facing intense pressures on their revenues and are looking to adapt their businesses to remain relevant and competitive in the market. The main benefits of commercial broadcasters forming a larger alliance are scale and efficiency, so combining resources, production infrastructure and expertise while looking to reduce costs and improve efficiency. This is particularly crucial for broadcasters as they strive to invest in new technologies to develop their streaming options and compete with global content distributors with significant resources and global scale. And you describe in your report two types of merger. So the the mergers between national players within one market and then mergers between broadcasters across different markets. You mentioned, you know, RTL, Viaplay, Sky and Media for Europe as examples of that. So what are the advantages of that model in particular? And what are some of the disadvantages, if you like? Mergers between national players certainly have their benefits. So they offer increased market power, offering the potential for for synergies and economies of scale. So whether that's in content production and acquisition or the creation of a more compelling streaming offering, 
and more diverse, locally relevant content that can resonate with a national audience. Consolidation also allows broadcasters to combine content libraries, offering viewers a more diverse and compelling range of, of programming, which is particularly important for national broadcasters looking to compete with the deep catalogues of streaming services. That being said, recent deals have seen tough regulatory barriers. So RTL Group has faced several issues with this strategy, having been dealt a double blow by media regulators after the collapse of the merger of its French TV network, MCS, with its larger domestic rival, TF1, and also the decision by Dutch authorities to block the proposed merger between RTL Netherlands and Talpa Network. In both cases, regulators argued that the merged entities would command too large a share of the TV advertising market, eventually leading to price increases for advertisers and distributors and consumers. There are concerns about concentrated media ownership and the impact that this might have on the diversity of content and also any innovation in the sector as well. I suppose the argument from those national players is that their competition is bigger than just the traditional TV rivals, that they're competing with global players with very deep pockets. And in most cases, most commercial broadcasters in Europe are, by those standards, very small and therefore really unable to compete at that level. Is, is that a fair, a fair comment? So far, regulators have judged these mergers through the prism of TV advertising, whereas realistically, Commercial broadcasters are facing competition from digital platforms and streamers, whilst also dealing with the advancements in online video advertising as well. So, so yes, competition from global streamers is undoubtedly strong, and broadcasters are now operating in a more globalized content market. So, consolidation is certainly an option for commercial broadcasters looking to gain scale, but it's certainly not the, the only option with some broadcasters also exploring partnerships and also looking to diversify their revenues as well. However, in the long term, broadcasters will be seriously considering consolidation as an option to gain scale and, and remain competitive, as well as securing their, their long term relevance. We've seen, as you mentioned, some of those attempts at mergers we've seen in the European market that have been blocked by local regulators. One one example, I guess, that did get through regulators but failed for other reasons was was in France with Salto, and I know Sam's written about this as well. Uh, so th that seems to have fallen by the wayside given the challenges of working with rivals and actually just the internal dynamics and politics of, of that situation. I don't know if that's a, a fair summary, but I guess that's another challenge that consolidation, even if it's allowed by regulators, there are still challenges within, within companies working together. Yes, certainly. Uh, so commercial broadcasters for a very long time have been competing with each other in terms of linear ratings and also in many cases do have their own niches. And when it comes to the issues with Salto, uncertainly we've also seen with BritBox UK is that partnerships are not always easy when there's different interests at play with broadcasters looking to focus on their own BVOD offerings. So they are trapped between trying to focus on their own operations and remaining competitive in the broadcasting markets. However, the option still remains for them to team up, to grow and to look for alliances to try and compete on that more international stage. And I guess one of the 
key challenges that commercial broadcasters have faced, which is kind of obvious, gets overlooked, is that they're still having to compete both the linear world and and the streaming world, and they have to provide the platforms, the technology to to distribute and compete on on both those levels, and that's a a significant investment for for what are in many cases fairly fairly small operators, and so consolidation does seem like an obvious step, but seems like it's sort of fraught with challenges. Yes, certainly. So we have seen more developments in terms of cross border consolidation strategies. Italian media group Media for Europe is, is a good example of this, who are convinced that consolidation in the sector is more achievable across borders rather than looking to those national mergers um, that are problematic for, for regulators. So Media for Europe have recently completed the merger of its Italian and Spanish broadcast operations, and they're also growing their interest in German broadcaster Sat one we have seen similar steps taken by Sky, Viaplay, CME and RTL. And while assembling a sort of cross-border alliance of scale could be important in terms of the, the context of global competition. So cost synergies are, are largely limited to advertising and platform technology. So while larger scale may help a, a company to absorb content costs, Broadcasters are really known for their culturally relevant content that is specific to a particular market, and there's likely limited opportunities to share content over borders in Europe, where dynamics and content preferences differ widely. So national mergers do offer the best competitive advantages compared to cross-border consolidation especially if they're planning to build a large-scale streaming platform with a deep catalogue that can address a national audience. But as we've seen, regulators so far have stood in the way of proposed deals. So in the short term, cross-border consolidation does seem a, a lot more likely. So Neil, in terms of consolidations and mergers and so on, we've seen a lot of activity in the US market in the last year or two, Warner Brothers Discovery being a prime example and others mooted. We don't see, from what you're saying, it doesn't look like there's something similar happening in Europe. It's a bit more complex. It's a more diverse, dynamic market. Regulators are more heavily involved. So the comparison is is not an easy one to make in terms of the role of consolidation in the two continents. In the US, we've obviously seen those pretty monumental deals in terms of Disney and Fox or Warner Bros. Discovery, as, as you mentioned. These have enabled these companies, you know, to, to access those deep catalogues and that's really underpinned their streaming strategies. In comparison, there has been limited advancements in terms of the European broadcasting market. I think a major driver behind this is the approach to regulation that the European Union and national governments have. So in terms of strict regulation around antitrust laws regarding media ownership and competition, these regulations ultimately aim to prevent monopolies and to protect consumer interests and make sure there's that diversity in the uh, broadcasting market. So the, this scrutiny and complexities on the whole have made it harder to, to gain approval. And we've seen that with the, the TF1 and MC's planned merger. So regulators are right to be concerned about concentrated media ownership and there are still strong linear audiences in Europe. But in the long term, I think we'll see commercial broadcasters in Europe push to, more towards trying to gain scale and look at potential deals 
to try and compete with more global forces in terms of the media industry. And let's not forget as well that Europe has a long history of public service broadcasting with some commercial broadcasters also having responsibilities in terms of their public service output. So there's definitely a more protectionist approach towards regulating the media in Europe compared to the US. So Yannicka, both Sam and Neil have talked about some of the challenges facing players looking to grow in European markets. You've been focusing on a relative success story, I think, which is Sky Showtime, a consolidated effort between two players in the SVOD industry looking to launch across multiple European markets. So can you give us a bit of background about the service and why it launched in the first place? Sky Showtime is a pan-European subscription video-on-demand service. So it's a platform specifically created for the European market. And Sky Showtime is a joint venture of Comcast, which is the parent company of NBC Universal and Sky, and Paramount Global, which is the parent company of US premium channel Showtime. Sky Showtime first launched in the four Nordic countries of Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Sweden in September 2022. And in those countries, Sky Showtime replaced Paramount Plus, which had existed uh, direct to consumer in the Nordics for a little over a year before it shut down. Sky Showtime then expanded to Portugal and the Netherlands in October 2022. And after a staggered launch, it is now available in 22 markets across Europe, including Spain and much of Central and Eastern Europe. Like you mentioned, Sky Showtime hasn't launched here in the UK nor has it launched in Germany or Italy, for example. And these are all countries where both Sky Pay TV and Paramount Plus already exist. However, Sky Showtime launch countries such as Spain, for instance, or Portugal, the Netherlands, Czechia, Slovenia, haven't had Paramount Plus, nor do they have a Sky Pay TV service. So Sky Showtime represents an opportunity to go after some of those smaller markets in Europe in a capital efficient way and bring the Sky and the Showtime branding to these regions for the first time, as well as create an incremental revenue opportunity for both Paramount and Comcast across their video brands. And you said that it replaced Paramount Plus in some of those launch markets, so there was already uh, an audience that, that I guess migrated to the, the new service, whereas some of the other smaller markets have not had Paramount Plus and not had Sky before, so the, the branding is new. Can you talk about some of the differences perhaps in, in what's available in those markets and how those, those, those services differ in terms of perhaps the catalogue or the, or the pitch? Yeah, so first of all, when we look at the catalogue sizes in the Nordics, for example, where Paramount Plus previously existed, the overall number of titles on Sky Showtime and Paramount Plus is broadly similar. So Sky Showtime has a very slightly larger catalogue, but the difference is less than 10%. And interestingly, there's a fairly large overlap in titles between the two services. So over a third of all titles on Sky Showtime in October 2022 were also on Paramount Plus in August 2022 and are therefore non-exclusive. In terms of the production companies, while Paramount Plus included mostly titles from Paramount itself and a very small amount of titles from NBC Universal, this has changed with Sky Showtime. So the number of NBC Universal titles has grown tenfold. So that is something that customers are getting extra. And this is, of course, a large benefit of this joint venture. 
However, something to note here is that both NBC Universal and Paramount are still licensing their titles to other services in the Nordics as well. So there are actually more NBC Universal titles on Viaplay and Netflix, for example, than on Sky Showtime itself. And similarly, Viaplay and TV2 Play Norway, for example, have more Paramount titles than Sky Showtime. So there is still also overlap with the Paramount and NBC Universal content across different platforms in the Nordics as well. I think that's a really interesting thing you've just hit on there, which is a trend I think we've seen in the last year or two, which is about, as you say, Sky Showtime not putting all their Paramount or NBCU content exclusively on their own platform. Uh, they're trying to monetize across multiple business lines. So if they can get more money from selling licensing content to Netflix, then they'll do that and they'll still have an SVOD service in the market. So having several attempts to to monetize that content or monetize that market, uh, whereas a couple of years ago, people were pulling services from from competitor services. So it seems like a very modern modern strategy, but they're still growing their own SVOD subscriber base at the same time as as getting those other revenue streams, right? Yeah, definitely. Still licensing their content to other services suggests that it's not necessarily the lack of income from licensing content. That's the main motivation from launching their own direct-to-consumer services. But I would say it's more about capitalizing on the total addressable market of subscription OTT across Europe. And then this kind of suggests that the aim for Sky Showtime is position to produce new incremental revenue rather than to replace the existing revenue stream that comes through licensing. And just to pick up something Sam mentioned earlier around the importance of local content in the catalogue, what share of Sky Showtime's catalogue is local and how important is investment in local content? Similarly to Paramount Plus, a very small proportion of titles on Sky Showtime are local. So there's a few local titles in Sweden, Portugal, Netherlands, Hungary, but this is very much a minority. And there are countries where Sky Showtime has no local titles. Generally, local content is favoured amongst consumers, whether it be Northern, Western, Southern or Eastern Europe. For example, according to Ampere's consumer service, if we look at Europe, around 90% of respondents enjoy a TV series produced in their own country at least sometimes. However, with local content, Sky Showtime has recently announced a lineup of upcoming original and exclusive series, and they're planning to premiere 10 original series in 2023. And these shows will be produced all across Europe. So, for example, in the Nordics, Sky Showtime will premiere Codename Annika, which is a Finnish-Swedish production. But there's also original shows coming from Spain, Poland, and other Central and Eastern European countries. Now, one of the things, just thinking about how Netflix grew originally, I think perhaps we still underestimate the importance of its partnership with service providers so that people weren't just building their own direct relationship with Netflix, but they were accessing that through a partnership with pay TV or telco providers as well. It seems like for Sky Showtime, there's a strong emphasis on partnerships with service providers in those markets being bundled into those deals. Is that important for gaining traction? Yeah, so this is something that we see a lot also with Paramount Plus, where subscribers are very much driven by these bundles with pay TV and telco providers. So if we come back to the Nordics, for example, uh, where Paramount Plus had 1.9 million subscribers when it closed down, a lot of these subscribers came through the partnerships where the Asphalt service is directly included in a TV package. So for example, uh, partnerships with the likes of Alente, Telia and Telenor. 
And in this region, where Sky Showtime replaces Paramount Plus, already at launch, Sky Showtime had partnered with all of the same pay TV operators as Paramount Plus. So this then makes it likely that most customers would have made the switch as this was made convenient for them. So a key driver of growth for Sky Showtime in non-Paramount Plus markets would probably be to adopt a similar strategy to Paramount Plus and partner with local pay TV operators. And this would be particularly important for growing pay TV markets. So for example, Portugal, where pay TV operators are increasingly creating converged ecosystems where customers can access broadcaster channels and streaming services. And these partnerships with these platforms can be a key way to increase awareness of the Sky Showtime brand in these new regions as well. So thinking of other US services that are looking to roll out across Europe this year and next year, what are the implications for those? Yeah, in terms of implications for streaming services in general that are keen to expand to Europe, growth may be challenging for new services, especially in mature markets in Europe. So for example, if we look at countries like the Netherlands, there's already plenty of services for consumers to choose from. And this further complicates the launch for new platforms as consumers are starting to reach a peak in stacking. And it is more challenging for new operators to unseat already established services in consumer streaming portfolios, particularly for services like Sky Showtime, where the brand recognition is not necessarily there. So for example, how neither the Sky nor the Showtime brand are very well known in the region. Also, of course, with high rates of inflation across Europe, cheaper price points can certainly boost the appeal of new services. So if we talk about Sky Showtime in specific, they actually offered a lifetime discount of 50% to early subscribers to the service. And this is something HBO Max also did in the region. And this may attract some early adopters, especially with the current macroeconomic conditions all over Europe. Thanks, Janneke. Some interesting lessons, I think, there for others looking to expand in Europe. In terms of the challenges and opportunities facing broadcasters and streaming services as they look to expand across Europe, from our discussion, I think we've seen several big themes emerge that are common to all the examples that we've been discussing. One of those is around partnership. And I just want to return Sam to Salto as an example, because I know you've been looking at that, because on paper, that seemed like a, a great example of local broadcasters joining together to create a compelling streaming service. But it just didn't work out, did it? No, it didn't. I think probably one of the fundamental problems with Salto was a kind of contrast of interests between the three partners who founded the service. We obviously have France Televisions, a public broadcaster, partnering up with two commercial broadcasters in MCs and TF1, obviously with different interests. Just seven months after the launch, MCs and TF1 started their negotiations to merge their activities which resulted in France Televisions agreeing to sell their stake should the merger go ahead. When the merger was blocked, the two commercial broadcasters, MCs and TF1, then announced that they were intending to sell their stakes in Salto, resulting in months of uncertainty prior to the platform's closure. I suppose one of the other main problems with this joint venture was that after Salto's initial launch, all of the players seemed to start to focus on their own streaming platforms rather than focusing all their efforts on this joint venture. Since launching, both TF1 and MCs launched new subscription versions of their existing BVOD services in MyTF1 Max and Play Max. 
it's then kind of further increasing competition for Salto itself, undermining its appeal. But Neil, you found some perhaps more slightly more positive examples of partnership across Europe? Yes, certainly. So we have seen some broadcasters try different things out when it comes to producing and distributing content. And I think they are thinking quite hard about the, the best way to partner to, to strengthen their position in the market. And we've certainly seen more co-production in terms of broadcasters, both public and commercial broadcasters, in terms of their, their content production, in terms of the European Alliance of co-production. Another example of this is the partnership between the BBC and Disney Plus on the next Doctor Who series, which will see Disney Plus as the new international home for the franchise. This will also see the show receive vast budgets beyond the BBC's means. Now, this is also coming at a time when the BBC have announced cuts to their commissioning budgets. So broadcasters in Europe are definitely looking at different options in terms of co-funding and co-production, but also looking at those options in terms of consolidation, as I mentioned as well. So we're certainly at a time where broadcasters are looking to join up in partnership with either commercial broadcasters, streaming services, US networks, trying different things out to see what sticks, what, what comes out well. And another theme that's come through this discussion, I think, is around the importance of local content or meeting local provision, actually, whether that's consumer demand for content or indeed regulators' demand for for, for being a, a fair player in the market and actually helping the, the growth of the, the local market in the longer term. So in terms of that, the role of the regulator, Sam, you touched on that in France, and they seem to have been quite kind of heavy handed, but it seems to be working. So with the introduction of the Smart Decree, the regulator is certainly enforcing content investment upon global streamers who really have come and shaken up the French media landscape in the past few years with this 20% of investment of local revenues into local content. But if we do focus on local content and bring that back to Salto, as a result of the partnership between three major broadcasters in France, Salto did have a very large local content catalogue. It had the third largest catalogue of all SVODs operating in France in December 2022, and by far the largest local catalogue. However, this may not necessarily guarantee success in the French market or in, indeed in other European markets. And Neil, in terms of consolidation, I guess that local angle, local content, uh, meeting local demand, that's, that's again key to success, is it? Yes, certainly. So commercial broadcasters looking to team up do have that strength and that then local content, live events, some free-to-air sports coverage, and um, also just setting the tone in terms of popular culture in European markets. So regulators are balancing, protecting that national TV and, and film industries in terms of the independent production sectors across Europe. But they also are tasked with helping broadcasters to adapt to the, to the current media landscape. So broadcasters do have a strength in understanding the local dynamics and local interests compared to streamers who are just testing the waters in terms of understanding what content can appeal to audiences and, and so far have really stuck to their scripted streaming investment compared to unscripted where broadcasters certainly have a strength in entertainment and factual genres. So regulators, from the reg regulator's perspective, they do need to, to balance the approach of having to protect national TV and film industries, as, as Sam has mentioned, in France as well. 
but they also need to address the growing popularity of global streaming services. So, Janneke, you've talked us through the sort of rollout of Sky Showtime, a collaboration between two US studios, successfully rolling out, launching across multiple European markets. How important has localization been to what they've been able to deliver in terms of localizing the content across those different markets? Yeah, so this is something that's perhaps overlooked at times, which is the localized interface and local language subtitles on the actual platform. So while many streaming services such as Netflix have decided not to prioritize localization in smaller markets across Europe, this is not necessarily a very successful move as this reduces the target audience due to language constraints. So keeping all of the language in English, for example, means people who don't speak that language obviously are not able to fully make use of the platform. In terms of Sky Showtime in specific, they've certainly tried to make localization more of a focus. So they've actually localized the platform across 18 different languages across Europe. So it's something that will be a benefit to their platform's long-term growth. And of course, coming back to the recently announced uh, lineup of original series across Europe as well, especially in smaller markets where there is a limited number of high-quality local content produced, these local original titles are likely to attract new subscribers. So thank you all for giving us some insights into how broadcasters and streaming services can have their moment in the sun in Europe without getting burnt. And that's all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. So thanks very much to all our guests for their time and for sharing their research with us today. We've heard from Sam about regulation of windowing in France, Neil about the consolidation of the TV industry in Europe, and finally Janneke about Sky Showtime's rollout in Europe. All the reports we've discussed today are available on Ampere's website, so do get in touch if you're interested in accessing any of this research. If you haven't done so already, please make sure you're subscribed to the AMP podcast as well as our weekly newsletter. And for more on Ampere's research and services, head to ampereanalysis.com or get in touch by emailing info at ampereanalysis.com. That's info at ampereanalysis.com. I'm Nick Thomas. I've been your host for today. The producer of this episode was Rory Goodrick. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>